Good to see all of you. Welcome to our Bible study tonight. Culture Shock is the title of it, and we're in 1 Peter. We're chapter 2. We'll be wrapping up chapter 2 tonight. So turn your Bibles with me there. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 25 tonight, finishing out the rest of the chapter. So good to see you. Those of you joining us online, we welcome you also. And uh, wherever you are and joining us, we welcome you. We're in Texas, it's cooler and it's wetter, so that's good. So I don't know where you are tonight, but welcome to our, our study together. Let's pray and we'll get started. God, we want to thank you tonight for the opportunity to study your word together, to learn from it. God, there are things every time, every Wednesday night that we can apply directly to our lives. And I pray tonight you would, you'd show us what you want us to know and direct us in our thoughts. Holy Spirit, will you be our teacher tonight? as we study the passage together that you inspired Peter to write. God, we thank you for everyone who's here. Pray your blessings upon them, and you open up our hearts and minds now to receive what you would have us to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. Just a reminder, it's been about 33 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, ascension back to heaven. It's about 63 A.D. now. There's a group of Gentile Christians who formed into a church living up in Asia Minor, Turkey, pretty good ways from Israel, just south of the Black Sea, and they're living in a culture that did not understand Christianity. It was the Roman Empire. They did not understand Christianity. They were becoming more hostile toward Christianity. The government disliked the Christian faith. And so this new section that we started last Wednesday night, begins addressing how do you function as a believer in a culture that is hostile to your faith. And so we, at times where we are living in a culture that doesn't understand the Christian faith that much, sometimes hostile to what we believe concerning Scripture, concerning points of Scripture and teachings of the Bible, sometimes we're mocked, sometimes we're called names, sometimes we go through what they went through. And so we're looking now at a section of that letter that, that Peter wrote uh, that Martin Luther called the section as the Hostophone in German. That literally means table talk. So you sit around the table as a family, things you talk about. And so he called the section from last week to this week to next Wednesday night, he called that section table talk. And it's basically Peter's uh, advice on how to live your faith practically in some practical relationships. Last week, question was, how are we to obey an ungodly government? Roman Empire was ungodly, and he said uh, last week that, in fact, the, the Roman Empire was calling Christians at the time, quote, bad actors. And so they did not like Christianity, and so what was the believer's response to an emperor, to leaders, to a government that was hostile toward the faith. And so Peter wrote and said, we are to obey them and we are to pray for them. Now, that's not what they probably wanted to hear. It may not be what you wanted to hear last week, but that's God's word through Peter. So, remember, suffering now for a believer, one year after this letter was written, starts to ramp up. You remember, this is 63 A.D. In 64 A.D., if you remember your history books, in Rome, the great fire of Rome, that supposedly that 
Nero set himself for several different reasons, but he blamed it on the Christians and started to persecute the Christians uh, at that time. So only a year after this letter is written, they really start to, to encounter uh, persecution. So last week it was, it was, how do you obey the government when the government's hostile to your faith? Tonight is servants be subject to your masters. And so now he talks about master-servant relationships. We don't have slavery today. We can equate what he says tonight basically to anybody who has authority over you. It may be an employer, it may be an administrator, it may be a teacher, it may be a boss, it may be a supervisor. How do you respond to people who have authority over you in relationships? So that's what he's talking about tonight. So let's get started. Verse 18, letter A on your outline, servants be subject to your masters. Now, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, let's stop there for a moment. This section begins the new section from what Peter ended last week in verse 17 about uh, the government. So it, it flows right into the section tonight. We know that because there is no finite verb and the nominative participle is not intended as a verb. So that's just all to tell you that Peter did not break his thought pattern from last week. Last week he said, obey authorities, obey the government, honor the emperor. Now I'm going to the next section, but I'm continuing from the previous section. And he'll do the same next week when we start talking about husbands and wives and wives submit to your husbands. And all. Well, it'll get fun next week. You want to be here, I'm sure. But we'll talk about that next week, all a part of what Martin Luther called the hostophone, one whole section of table talk of how are you to live. Now, first of all, the word servant is the word slave. We don't like to hear the word slave. In fact, today in some classrooms, you can't even use the word anymore. It's the word slave. It's the word doulos in Scripture, but Peter doesn't use doulos. He uses another word. Paul talks about slave. I'm a slave for Christ, and he uses doulos over and over and over. Peter doesn't use doulos. He uses another word, oiketai, which meant house servant. We would know them as maids or housekeepers. Someone who comes in and helps you keep your house. Why did he refer to them as housekeepers and not slaves working in a field? Probably because those believers up there in Asia Minor, they were probably slaves, many of them, but they probably were slaves in a sense that there were maids or housekeepers or they worked in homes. So that's probably why Peter used a different word than Paul. In this day, the servant was the person who had the most difficulty relating to a person over them in authority because sometimes masters were cruel in this day. Masters in this day had come great power over slaves. Slaves' personal freedom was very limited much like we know slavery to be. 
And I would have expected Peter, verse 18, rather than talking about how servants ought to be subject to their masters, I would have expected him to start talking about how evil slavery is. Wouldn't you? In fact, the Bible really doesn't talk that much about it because it was an accepted practice. Doesn't mean we should have accepted it today. Doesn't mean it's right today. It's just that he doesn't address slavery and the evils of it. He addresses, now that you're in the midst of it, how do you act? That's what he addressed primarily. God did not institute slavery. We know that. Humans did. But rather than address the topic of slavery, God chose to inspire Peter to tell people how to act in the midst of it. So that's what these verses are about. As I mentioned, the direct application for us would be anybody who's directly over us in authority, whether it's in, if you're an employee, whether it's your boss, whether it's your administrator, whether it's a supervisor, whether it's a superintendent, whether it's your, uh, whoever it is at work that's over you, this directly applies to us. Just like last week applied to the emperor and to the government, Peter commanded you to have a respectful submission to whoever's over you in authority. Now you may say, Pastor, what if they are not worthy of my respect? Doesn't matter. Their attitude shouldn't affect your attitude. Now, that's hard, I know, because it does. Peter's saying it shouldn't. Notice what he says, be servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. Who is to have the respect? The masters? No. God. So we know that because the dative is used, not the genitive. Not respect toward your master. Respect toward God. So here's the picture. You're an employee. You have somebody over you. They're not a very good boss. They are maybe mistreat you. Maybe they are snide remarks about your faith. Whatever they snide remarks about. And so you submit to them and respect them, not because of who they are, but because of who God is. As a Christian, you submit to them as you're submitting to God. Now, that's kind of hard, isn't it? Peter wasn't saying submit to the masters who are good and gentle to you. And the ones that are harsh, you be harsh back. He said here in verse 18, whether they're harsh or whether they're gentle, you be the same. Now, the question comes up, why didn't Peter next go into masters? Here's how you treat your servants. Why didn't he go into that? He didn't. He just stopped with servants. Most theologians believe because in the congregation he was writing to, there were no masters. They were all slaves. You see, Christianity, when it first started, reached the poor classes. That was one of the criticisms, the book of Acts. Christianity, it's just a poor man's faith. So, most likely, there were no masters in the congregation. There were only slaves. But now go to verse 9, verses 19 and 20, letter B on your outline. 
suffering unjustly. Look at verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly or unjustly. Verse 20. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, let's talk about this for a moment. Verse 19. Peter says the reason we are to respond in the way we respond with respect to harsh masters is because we are obeying God. This is God's will. It's commendable to God. It's gracious to God whenever you do that. So when someone's harsh to you, you look past them to God. And you're submitting to Him. It's Your behavior is God's will. The fact that this is the way in which God wants us to respond is reason enough. That's enough. That's all you need to know. Well, pastor, what about this? Doesn't matter. What, what about that? Doesn't matter. The fact this is what God wants you to do is enough. Period. Well, my situation's different. No, it's not. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter how harsh they are. Doesn't matter how mean they are. Your response should be a response to God. Our commitment to Christ alone should move us to do what's right, which results in a clear conscience. Now, it's quite possible that some in the congregation who Peter was writing to were suffering because of the treatment of their masters. Dr. Clark uh, said that he believes what was going on in this congregation up there in Asia Minor was the, the congregation was full of slaves or servants, and they had masters who wanted them to worship their idols. And they would not because they were believers in Jesus. They didn't worship any other idols. And because of it, masters got angry and would beat and were harsh to the servants who were believers. Dr. Clark said he believed that's what was going on and Peter was addressing. Maybe so. But for whatever reason, whatever reason, it is gracious. The word means Favor, it's the word, it's the, the Greek word charis. We get charismatic uh, from it's the word grace uh, in, in, in Greek, and it literally means gracious. It is graceful for you to respond Christ like when your employer does bad things to you. Now, the reason it's gracious is because God is gracious to us when we don't deserve it. So we should be gracious when other people don't deserve it. Now look at verse 20. What credit is it to you, Peter asks, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, Peter made a distinction between suffering for your own sins and suffering for the sins of someone else. There, there's a difference. If you suffer because of your own wrongs, that's no credit to you. 
And I've heard people that I've heard people in, that have told me those things before. They they act in a certain way and then say, "Oh, they're persecuting me for my faith." No, they're persecuting you because you were wrong in what you did. Now, if they persecute you for your faith genuinely, then you have credit from God. But he says, if not, if you're if you're doing things that are wrong and you're saying I'm persecuted because I'm a Christian, then that's not to your credit. Suppose this would have happened back in this day. Suppose to the church Peter's writing to, a Christian slave has a master who keeps abusing them. And the believing slave grows resentful and gets more resentful and stops giving their best and gets beaten for not giving their best by the master that is not suffering for Christ's sake. It's suffering because you got resentful. And Peter says, God doesn't honor that. He said, what kind of testimony of a Christ-like follower is that to your master when you got resentful because he was abusing you? So the motive was your resentment not your testimony. So, Peter really didn't play the games that sometimes we get into. Sometimes we're the ones at fault because of our attitude, and then we say, oh, it's because I'm a Christian they're doing this. If it really is because you're a Christian then you're, they're doing that, then you're honored by God. But if not, then you aren't. Sometimes, we as believers are subject to the mood of a supervisor. I, I, I admit that. Or we're subject to the prevailing moods of our culture or of our government. It happens to us. So basically, the choice of the Christian slaves in Asia Minor during the time of Peter either grow resentful or honor God by honoring the Master. And that was really their only choice. You can become bitter. Or you can choose to honor them regardless of how harsh they are because you're honoring God. And you know, that's really our only options either. If you have somebody over you today, tonight that you feel like is abusing you, they don't like you, they're making job hard for you, they're making school hard for you, they're making your neighborhood hard for you, or whatever it is, somebody that's over you in some form your choice is either to become resentful toward them and bitter about it or to honor God, keep a good spirit, show kindness because God's shown kindness to you and honor God in so doing. Is that easy? No. Do we need an example of what it looks like? Yes. So, he gives us one. Verse 23. Let us see on your outline, 21 to 23, the example of Jesus suffering unjustly. Verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, 
Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him, God, who judges justly. So tonight, whenever you say, Pastor, that's hard. I I can't do that to my boss. I'm just too bitter. Well, take the example of Jesus. He did it. And you have his power, so you can as well. Look at verse 21. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Part of our calling includes suffering. He says it right here. You've been called to it. Now, in our culture, we don't really suffer a lot, as some believers do in other parts of the world. We may think we are, but there are places of believers in Afghanistan tonight suffer much more than we do for being a Christian. So, whenever you get it, don't be surprised. Sometimes we act shocked at our culture because of what they're doing to Christians and what they're making Christians do. And Don't be shocked. Calm down. It's part of what we're called to. Jesus suffered for righteous conduct at the hands of sinners. You can expect it too. You can expect to draw the same response from an ungodly culture. He suffered not because of anything wrong he said or anything wrong that he did. He just bore it. So should we. We should just bear it. Now, Peter wanted his readers to endure suffering with the right spirit. He also wanted them to remember that their experience duplicated what Jesus went through. Now, look at this phrase in verse 21. It's really interesting. Leaving you an example. The word example that's used there is interesting. It's a, it's a compound word. Hypo is a prefix. Grammon. What does grammon sound like? Grammar? Yeah. It is the picture of placing a blank sheet of paper on top of a drawing which I used to do as a kid a lot because I couldn't draw and I'd take a pencil and I would outline and I would draw on the top sheet the image on the bottom sheet it's the exact picture of hypogrammon you take your example your life you let Jesus example and you lay yours on top of his And every way he suffered, you suffer. Every attitude he had, you have. Every spirit he had, you have. You trace exactly what he looked like. Peter's use of hypogramma on there is really powerful. So, leaving you a pattern so that you might follow in his steps. I remember one time whenever I was a boy, uh, we, we had more snow in Oklahoma than we do here. It snowed, and my, my brother, who was bigger than me, he had walked across the yard and, and it freshly fallen snow, and so I saw his steps, and I tried to retrace the exactly step he was in. His steps, his steps are bigger than mine, but I remember trying to put my feet in those same steps, not to make any more tracks in the snow, but walk in his steps, and that is the exact image of what Peter wrote. Jesus has already walked this road of suffering unjustly. 
you don't think you're the first one to do it. So when you have somebody over you that's not treating you right, he knows what you're talking about. And so you put your feet in those same steps he walked. Everything he did, you do. So it's the pattern on the paper. And it's the steps in the snow. So you do exactly as he did. Verse 22. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. Now starting in verse 22, uh, theologian Edward Hebert says, it, starting in 22 through 25, we have the fullest elaboration in the New Testament of the example that Jesus set for you and me. John Calvin says, quote, Nothing seems more unworthy and therefore less tolerable than undeservedly suffering. But when we turn our eyes to the Son of God, the bitterness is mitigated. For who would refuse to follow him who's gone before us? Calvin's right there. Peter mentioned the prophecy of Isaiah 53. You remember me saying Peter quotes the Old Testament a lot. So now the image he has, they're suffering up there Asia Minor, Asia Minor, south of the Black Sea. And his mind goes to Isaiah 53 in the Old Testament. Which said, the Messiah when he comes, there will be no guile in his mouth or deceit that is found. He doesn't quote it exactly. It's Isaiah 53, 9. But he does quote it. And that verse shows us that Jesus... In his conduct, and especially in his words, followed God's will. Let me say that again. He shows us that Jesus in his conduct and his words followed God's will when he was unjustly suffering. Do you know what you and I do sometimes? Sometimes we're good on the conduct, but man, we come home and we blast them. The words and the conduct are not the same. You may put up with it, but boy, you get home and you let them have it. Sometimes I think the words are harder for us. Jesus, no deceit, came out of his mouth now think about this Peter wrote this the same Peter who was a disciple of Christ who followed Jesus around three and a half years 24 hours a day seven days a week lived with him for three and a half years and said I never once saw deceit come out of his mouth could somebody follow you for three years 24 7 and say never heard him say a bad thing No, because sometimes in private, we let our resentment out and our bitterness out. He never did. You know, do you think ever once after an encounter with the religious leaders, he had gone back to the disciples going, oh, those guys, they were. Evidently not. Because Peter, interesting phrase coming from someone who walked with him, said he never sinned. Even in his words. 
This is probably one area very difficult for those people up there on, in Asia Minor. They're one area difficult for slaves in the Roman Empire to whom Peter wrote, grumbling under their breath and complaining in the privacy of their home about being treated by those awful masters. And Jesus never found in his mouth. Maybe that's an area we need to work on. Not just conduct, but words. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. But if anybody could have threatened, oh, it would have been him. He had power to pull it off. He could have said, angels, come take care of them. And it would have happened. He didn't threaten. He continued trusting himself to God who judges justly. Now, starting in verse 23, Peter mentions three descriptive imperfect tenses. Linsky says Peter presents them like a short moving film. We would know it as a video where images just pop up. He does it three times here. And he referred to Jesus' suffering when he was on trial during the crucifixion. Now imagine Peter is referring, as he's writing to the, the letter, to Jesus on trial during the crucifixion. You remember, he was there. He was warming him, his hands by the fire. If you remember the gospel account, they arrested Jesus. Peter followed at a distance in the courtyard, wanted to see what happened. So he's watching out of one corner of his eye what's going on, warming his hands by the fire from a distance, and he sees what they do to Jesus. He hears Jesus' response, and now he refers to that because it's still in his mind's eye as he's writing the letter. And he says... When they heaped abuse upon him, he didn't respond. He remembers it. When they threatened him, he didn't threaten back. Boy, I would have if I was him, Peter probably thought. He didn't. And all the way through this trial, and all the way to Golgotha, and all the way on the cross, Jesus had this resolve of, I'm trusting God I'm not worried about what they're doing. That's a pretty good example to follow, isn't it? Jesus could have done something about it. He had his power to do so. But he kept trusting God. You know, it's interesting that Peter gives us a picture of what Jesus did not do. Interesting, isn't it? He gives us a picture of what Christ didn't do. Sometimes we are defined more by what we don't do than what we do. You know that Christian, they, they, they're a believer and boy, I saw the way the boss treated them. They didn't respond. They didn't fire back. They didn't report them to management. Sometimes we're known more by what we don't do. And Peter refers to what Jesus did not do. 
I want you to listen to what Charles Spurgeon said when he preached on this passage. Quote, Which hour do you think of the sufferings of our Lord from Gethsemane to Golgotha would be the most deeply engraved in the memory of Peter? Surely it would be that space of time in which he was mocked and buffeted in the hall of the high priest. When Peter sat and warmed his hands at the fire, when he saw his Lord abused and was afraid to own the fact that he was a disciple, and by and by became so terrified with profane language, he declared, I don't know the man. But as long as life lingered, the apostle Peter would remember that meek and quiet, the bearing of his suffering of his Lord all through the process. So that's what he uses as an example for those up in Asia Minor. Now go to verses 24 and 25 and we'll close. Christ's sacrificial death. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now have you returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. So get this picture. They're believers up there in Asia Minor. They're slaves. Their masters are abusing them. Maybe because they're not worshiping idols with them. And Peter writes and says, you keep honoring God by honoring your masters. And the reason you should is because of the death of Jesus. And he goes into great detail on the death of Jesus. Because he said, not only was that death an example for you. It was your salvation. It was your atoning sacrifice. So, Jesus' death was much more. It was a substitute in our place. Peter was saying Jesus' suffering accomplished a lot. Just like believers in Asia, your suffering is accomplishing a lot. And just like believers here in Garland, your suffering is used of God. Notice the phrase, he himself bore our sins in his body. Now the, the word that Peter uses here for bore, he bore our sins... It's the word anaphiro in, in Greek, and it's, the, it's a ritual term. It's a term of sacrifice from the Old Testament. We see the same word in Leviticus 14.20, the Septuagint, meaning to bring a sacrifice to the altar. So Peter, as he's watching by the campfire, he sees his Lord going to Golgotha, and in his mind goes back to Leviticus 14.20, the sacrifice they're taking up, to crucify for the sins of the people. Leviticus. Same word used in the Septuagint of Genesis 22 when Isaac was taken up by Abraham to be sacrificed. The altar. Same word. So in Peter's mind, he's saying the reason for Christ's death 
was an Old Testament sacrifice. He was that lamb they were dragging up to the altar to kill. And he puts the word bore, he bore our sins in the beginning of this sentence in Greek, which is for emphasis. He wanted to remind those believers up there who were being mistreated by their masters. Jesus bore your sins so you can bear what you're going through. The word bears emphasis. Notice what he says next. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Right? Nope. Tree. Did you notice that? He didn't say cross. He said xylon in Greek, which is wood. To be hung on wood in Jewish law meant you were cursed and you became a curse. You wouldn't hang on wood. Sometimes they would impale you. They sometimes called a, a giblet or we know, we'd know it as a cross, but it was sometimes just a stake. But that meant in Jewish law, if you were hung on wood, that you were cursed. Paul uses the same description, Galatians 3.13, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That's because it was mentioned in Deuteronomy 21.23, the Old Testament, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, not a cross, a tree. Now, was the cross made of wood? Yes. But I find it interesting, he does not use the word staros here. He uses the word xylon, meaning he was accursed for you. Peter said the penalty for our sins laid down his life as payment for us. So there in Peter's mind, Jesus is headed to Golgotha, his body loaded down with my sins and yours. And there he went. Peter said that he might die to sin, and that we might die to sin, rather, and live to righteousness. The word die there means cease to exist, and, and, and live to righteousness literally means you've broken with your sins of the past. So it literally means broken with our sins, we can now live a righteous life. Our life was permanently changed at the cross. So tonight, if you say, well, pastor, I know that he says to do that to my, my bosses, but I just can't do it. Yes, you can. You know how I know you can? Because you've died. You've died to self. And you're alive to righteousness. So he was negating any excuse they'd give him. Oh, I can't do that. Sure you can. You're dead. As a believer, you've died. You cease to exist. And you're living now to righteousness. Our sin debt was paid. Folks, whenever you pay a debt, you don't worry about it anymore, do you? If you have a bill come in and you pay it, you don't worry about it. It's paid. You move on. You don't look back at debts that are paid and worry about them. Your sin debt was paid. Let it go. Move on. 
You are a new you. And then look what he says, that by his wounds you have been healed. That's a quote, Isaiah 53, 5, so it's where it says, by his stripes you've been healed. Now, one quick side note if I can. I'm going to chase a lot of rabbits, but I'll chase a tiny one here. Some Christians have made this statement, by his stripes we are healed, to mean healing from illness or physical ailments that every Christian can claim. That's not what he's talking about. I don't know how many times I've had people say, well, I know that I'm going to get my healing because the Bible says by his stripes we're healed. It's not talking about your physical ailments, your illnesses. He may choose to, to heal you, but it's not a promise from Isaiah 53, 5. The healing is a spiritual healing. Your atonement, you're spiritually healed. This is not a promise that all of your physical healing and ailments will be gone. Peter is simply using healing as a metaphor for spiritual cleansing like Isaiah did whenever Isaiah mentioned your griefs and your sorrows. He didn't say your diseases and your sicknesses. So this is not a promise that you're going to be healed physically. God may heal you physically, but this is not a promise that he will whenever he says by your stripes you're healed. You're healed spiritually. Verse 25, we'll close. For you were straying, he says, like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the bishop or the overseer of your souls. Just like Isaiah had said, Peter now reminds his readers they were like sheep wandering from the fold and they had wandered from God. But now they've returned to the good shepherd, Jesus, who had fulfilled them, uh, fulfilled to them the function of being a shepherd by guarding their souls from the wolves and from masters. You see, wandering sheep have no one to look after them. And if they don't, they're doomed to perish unless the shepherd comes. Christ is that shepherd who comes to look after his sheep. The enemies may attack their bodies, but the Lord would preserve their soul. And now he says, you return to the shepherd, the pastor, the poimon, and the overseer, the bishop of your souls. Now, they would not have had a bishop in churches in 63 AD. They wouldn't have had that yet. One would come soon, and they would have an ecclesiastical or church office known as a bishop soon. But at this time, they didn't. He's not talking about the office. He's talking about the function. The word bishop is the word episcopon that's used here. What does that sound like? It sounds like Episcopal. It's exactly right. Or Episcopalian. It means elder. An Episcopalian church is an elder-run church. And so the word elder or overseer, somebody who's going to take care of you. So here's the image. Suffering Christians in Asia Minor. Slaves to a harsh master up there. But having Jesus as the shepherd and the overseer of your soul, that would have been of great comfort, as Peter wrote it. His gentle hand would keep them because he was mindful of what they're going through. And the same is true of us. 
Tonight, folks, whatever you're going through, whether whatever it is, whether it's a boss that you can't get along with or that's unbearable or whoever it is, you submit to them as submitting to God. And the gentle hand of God will keep you with a mindful condition of all you're going through. God himself will bless you. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you tonight for instructing us because sometimes, Lord, course of life, there are people who are over us that they're unbearable, they're hard to deal with. Lord, may our Christian testimony and our Christian faith be strong even in the midst of those unbearable times. God, it just may be a friend who's unbearable sometimes. But Lord, may we have Jesus as our tracing, as our, as, our, as our example, those steps we can walk in, those steps that he took. May there be no deceit in our mouths as there wasn't in Christ. God, may we not revile back whenever we're reviled, and may we not threatened whenever we're threatened, even if we have the power to do it. Jesus, thank you for our atonement. Thank you that you've made us different. And now, Lord, Help us to resemble you in all of our dealings. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. We'll see you Sunday.